Welcome to Orthodox.Faith. I'm John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. In this podcast, we teach accessible and responsible Bible and Christian theology. And in this episode, we welcome you to Season 2 on Orthodox.Faith. Our first series of Season 2 is a series that we're calling Prepare the Way. That's right. Prepared the way. The earliest Christians were absolutely convinced that Jesus' life was the climax of God's work through the ancient nation of Israel. It was like they were saying, we knew this was coming, we just didn't know when, and we now are of all people most fortunate to have seen it. This really baffles some modern Christians. Uh, we want to say they knew it was coming? How? Hmm. It gets even more baffling because the early Christians insisted that they could see the work of God in Jesus Christ clearly foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And we modern day Christians less familiar with the Old Testament documents, we often emerge from our infrequent contact with it saying, surely not. <laughs> so, yeah. We're going to look at one such connection over the next four episodes as part of this Prepare the Way series. We're going to consider a specific passage in the Old Testament and then look at how it was quoted and interpreted in several places in the New Testament. Yes, the specific passage that we're going to look at in this episode is Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. It's one of the most frequently quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament, and it is a truly magnificent passage that opens a truly magnificent chapter that opens a truly magnificent portion of the book of Isaiah. The passage itself that we're looking at from Isaiah 40 focuses our attention on the hope that belongs to God's people. As we go through this series, we'll see how the gospel writers in the New Testament understood how the specific hope of this passage in Isaiah was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and what that means for us. But we'll start with the foundation of what those writers were resting their understanding on. Now, hope can be a fairly rare commodity today. There's temptations all around us to surrender our hope and to attempt to live without it. We also know that so many of the troubles that propel us in that direction are self-inflicted <laughs> as we live in conflict with how God calls us to live, whether that's at an individual level or at a collective level as a society as a whole. It can be easy to think that we've taken our selfishness so far as to be irredeemable so that we just resign ourselves to the belief that it can't get any better. But Isaiah clears our vision to see hope even in that case. And we'll try to let Isaiah do that in this episode and to prepare the way to see how the New Testament understands how God's ongoing works of grace in the Old Testament come to a climax in Jesus Christ, especially as we see that through this text that opens up Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is a magnificent chapter, and it is an obvious place to go when talking about hope. Now, we've just wrapped up the last season and the last series of the last season talking about hope, and a series called Ultimate Hope has a name. This takes a slightly different direction. We're definitely going to be focusing on Isaiah 40 and then how it's quoted in the New Testament, but there is no doubt that this Hope is at the center of it. And the question now is, how did early Christians understand the expression of hope in Jesus? And how is that shaped by their understanding of passages like Isaiah chapter 40? 
for opening this series with this chapter out of Isaiah. Isaiah, if you're not familiar with it, is one of the prophets of ancient Israel. And we hear that word prophet, and so many of us begin to think, oh, foretelling the future. There is much more to the prophecy of ancient Israel than foretelling the future or more accurately telling the people what God intends to do. Although that right there starts to get closer to understanding what these ancient prophets were about. They were there to preach, essentially, to call the people back to God. And as soon as we're talking about a prophet in the context of ancient Israel, we're talking about a prophet in the context of a nation with whom God had established a covenant. That's right. And the word covenant is an important word to highlight here because that is the essential description of God's relationship with Israel. God and Israel lived in covenant. And one of the features of covenant relationship are what are called the stipulations. The, okay. There are blessings for being faithful to the covenant. Okay. And there are what are called in the ancient world curses or right. disciplinary measures for <laughs> uh, for failing in one's faithfulness to the covenant. And, and all of this is stipulated in the formalized covenant that we have in the Torah earlier in the Old Testament. And all of that was meant to motivate the people toward faithfulness, okay. uh, faithfulness to God and to motivate them away from sin or unfaithfulness to God. That's the way the part of the way that the covenant worked. Now prophecy functioned primarily to identify problems with covenant observance and okay. to call Israel back into covenant faithfulness where they were straying away. So as you can imagine, warning is a common feature do of this. prophecy. Yes, but it isn't just all about warning and threat. And a lot of people mischaracterize biblical prophecy because uh, all they seem to hear is the warning and the threat, okay. uh, the, the calling uh, upon covenant curse. But always, in every case, without exception, those warnings came with hope. They came with the opportunity to turn toward God and to be restored to the covenant blessings rather than to continue on toward the need to affect the covenant discipline. So the first part of Isaiah is that warning part, that part that refers to the covenant and says, hey, Israel, you're not doing so well here. We may need some discipline. That part of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, speak to Israel during Isaiah's own lifetime, which was in the latter part of the 8th century BC. And if I remember correctly, this is right before the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. Is that correct? Yes. Now, not all of that section of Isaiah is before that event, but yes, that is roughly the time period that we're talking about. That portion of the book makes the case that Israel was not being faithful to the covenant, and there was therefore going to be a need to enforce the covenant terms. And Isaiah spoke to the people of his day, warning them of the dangers of continuing as they were. Under the covenant, one of the consequences of unfaithfulness was forfeiture of the promised land. Israel would be exiled from the land if they did not choose to put their trust in God. And that's the really important part of Isaiah 1 to 39 that we want to highlight here. John, when I hear you describe it this way, I think in terms of I didn't honor the agreements of the mortgage on my car, so someone's going to show up to repossess it. (laughs) I badly misunderstood (laughs) what you're describing here. (laughs) Well, in a sense, uh, there's certainly more to a covenant with God than to a mortgage. (laughs) But yes, uh, there is an agreement 
that is at the heart, an agreement that formalizes a relationship that is already in place, that articulates how that relationship is to work. It includes if the relationship works as it should, this is what will happen. If it does not work as it should, that is what will happen. That's the essence of of what's being articulated or what's being referred to in the first part of the book of Isaiah. Okay, but when we come to Isaiah chapter 43, Things really do seem to change. We've both said this is a magnificent chapter. We're going to say more about that, but something changes. The tone changes. What's what's going on in Isaiah chapter 40? Yeah, the audience that Isaiah is speaking to is a completely different one because when we get to chapter 40, then the author presupposes that the people are in exile and actually speaks from the past into the future. The author talks to the Israelites who are in exile. So there's a really sharp change in the tone. There's a change in the subject matter. There's a change in the setting because what has happened is between chapter 39 and 40, the author has stopped talking to the people of his own day because he knows that the people will wind up in exile and will need to hear a word from God when they get there. And so he speaks that word even in the past to give hope to that community. But that sharp change in tone and setting and in topic is actually cause for some to think that this has to be a completely different author. Okay. This is so different right. that this must be a later author from the time of the exile, long after Isaiah is gone, speaking to the exiles in that day. But there's some problems with that theory in that there's no documentary evidence to support it. There's absolutely nothing beyond simply what we observe in the text of Isaiah to suggest that these were two separate documents at some point that were brought together at a later time. Oh, when I was in seminary, I do remember that was exactly the way it was presented to me, that there's first Isaiah, which is chapters 1 through 39, and then second yes. Isaiah begins in chapter 40, and some would even put in a third Isaiah there. So mm-hmm. if I understand what you're saying, if there really were two separate books, somewhere we would have expected historically to see Isaiah 1 through 39 off by themselves in one place, and Isaiah chapter 40 off in some other place by itself. But we see that that nowhere. We just have the entire book together. Yeah. We not only see it nowhere, we have no reference to it in okay. anywhere. There's no, not even a reference to a book of Isaiah that only consists of a portion of what we have. I'm certainly familiar with that in the New Testament world because there are those theories that there's a document called Q that lies behind some of the shared text between Matthew and Luke. It goes so far as you can go to the library and pull the critical edition of Q off of the shelf. But again, this is a document <laughs> (laughs) that exists in conjecture only because Mm. nowhere have we found anything or, as you say, even a reference to that separate document. It's just surmised based on the text. Yeah, that's a good example. But as we're talking about it here, we're going to go ahead and approach it from the notion that this is Isaiah, the author of the original first 39 chapters, addressing in the future a different group of people. It makes perfect sense in the flow of the book of Isaiah, and also given the absence of any evidence to understand it otherwise, that Isaiah could easily turn and speak words of hope, because that's a feature of prophecy. The words of hope and restoration are a very common element in prophecy, because God chooses to communicate to God's people that this isn't just about judgment and punishment. This is about relationship and about the ability to continue in relationship. So there's a far better explanation for why the shift happens at chapter 40 than that uh, this is just simply a different writer in a different time writing to a different audience. The nation of Israel faced a, a serious crisis 
there was a dire problem serious questions that were raised when they were sent into exile when jerusalem fell remember the temple was destroyed and the temple was where god lived the people of jerusalem and they get called out on this elsewhere in the prophets they began to act like well nothing bad can happen to us because we live in jerusalem what could possibly go wrong to the people who live in the city where god's house is So God's presence dwelled in Jerusalem. Well, when the temple fell, when Jerusalem fell, and the people were exiled, there were some serious questions about, well, what happened to God? When God's house was destroyed, was God defeated by other Babylonian gods? Was God finished? Had God abandoned them? There was a theological crisis that went with those events. The big question in Israel's mind is, is God done with us? Were Israel and God finally finished for good? And the rest of Isaiah, including this chapter, answers that question. At this point, we're going to jump into the passage itself, this first portion of chapter 40 in Isaiah. We're going to come at this a verse at a time, maybe two or three verses at a time, and just work our way through. Starting with verse 1, this change in tone is just profoundly evident right from these first words. It goes like this, comfort, comfort my people says your God. Just the way that that was said would be comforting (laughs) to Israel in their exiled situation. That doubling of the imperative. Okay. Because this is not the noun comfort. This is uh, instructions to the prophet to comfort the people. That God has told Israel to speak words of comfort and to be a comfort to Israel. And the doubling of this has an emotional intensity to it that really underscores the fact that something yes, has really changed in this storyline of Israel and God's covenant relationship. So something like, go and comfort these people. I really mean it. Go comfort them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes, yes. That's great Hebrew there. (laughs) Okay. Well, the second verse goes like this. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I can see the comfort there, but something that's always perplexed me a bit, John, is the way it wraps up there at the end. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Did Mm. did God overdo it on the punishment side here? (laughs) Yeah, it's easy to maybe think that way. It's easy for us to make that supposition. Did God punish Israel excessively? Did God punish Israel excessively? out of proportion, right. but that doesn't fit the larger biblical context at all. Okay. Plus, this is poetry. So right. we've got to remember we're dealing with figurative language and imagery, and we need to be careful not to jump to conclusions that come from reading too narrowly. But that sense of twice over, it could be a couple of things. That double sense may refer to the twin fallings of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel that fell to Assyria, and the southern kingdom of Judah oh, okay. that fell to the Babylonians. It could be uh, that twin fallings. It was both of those together that really finished off what had been the whole of Israel originally. Mm. Another and a better possibility, I think, is that the double that Israel received is God's comfort and mercy and God's blessing in Israel's coming restoration. God's grace and God's blessing will come on Israel twice as powerfully, poetically speaking, Got it. Uh, twice as powerfully as 
the punishment for sin had come. And this is how I read the verse. Got it. Remember the doubling of the word comfort right. in verse one? That, right. Could that be the referent of what Israel receives twice over? Got it. I think something along those lines is the most likely reading. Well, now we get to the heart of this passage and the passage that gives this series its title and something that the New Testament authors latched onto so strongly. Starting in verse three, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Hmm. Familiar words, aren't they? They are. Uh, they are. Yeah. Those get repeated a lot in word and song. Yes. The image here is really the image of preparing a way for a king. Okay. Because when royalty traveled, uh, I mean, think about it today. There are advanced teams when a head of state or a dignitary travels. Uh, right. There are advanced teams that go ahead to prepare the way so that the voyage is as smooth as possible. And in the ancient world, these advanced teams would go ahead of the king and literally fix the roads. Okay. Or even if there needed to be new roads built, they would build them. Literally, if there was a bump in the road, it would be smoothed over. Right. <laughs> if there was a dip in the road, it would be filled in. Because the idea is getting the king to his destination with as little discomfort or detour or interruption as possible. And so this image of preparing a way, a royal highway for the king is really pointing to God is king, the real king, not the king of Babylon, not the king of Assyria, not the king of anywhere else, but God is the real king and God, that king is coming. So this prepared highway is the highway that the king would travel on. And the king would travel on not just to arrive at a destination, but to gather the people okay. and take them home. And that's got some background in the Old right. Testament, doesn't it? Right. This idea of the exodus, right. of the people being delivered from their captivity. So some of this language echoes the exodus itself. That was the clearest memory that Israel had of God releasing his people from captivity. We've got all this language that the king is coming, the king is coming. And there's a certainty about this that the text gives us as verse 5 ends, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's just a, a way of underscoring it and saying, you can be sure of this because this word is coming from God himself. You better believe it. Mm -hmm. Okay. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry out? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Yeah, that voice that we're hearing in the passage continues by underscoring that God is great and will do a great thing here. And it's something that humans can't do for themselves. Okay. And the emphasis here in this section is really on the frailty and the feebleness of who we are and what we can do as compared to God. Humans are weak. Our lives are temporary and they're fleeting. And we can only do so much. In fact, there's no guarantee that when we purpose to do something that we'll even be around to see it through. Right. We're just temporary and fleeting, and we get that imagery with the flower fading and the grass withering. But in sharp contrast to that, there's God. Right. God can do this. God can proclaim blessing, or God can proclaim judgment for that matter, right. in one age, 
and be around to bring it to pass in another because God will always be around. If he decides to do something in the future, we know that he not only may intend to do it, but that he'll be here to get it done. God can deliver, in other words. God not only wants to do this for God's people, but God is also fully capable of doing it. It wraps up with these words. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Did you notice that this message that Israel is supposed to proclaim, this message of the Lord's coming and in his deliverance, is to be made in the hearing of the whole world. That's gotcha. really something that's r- remarkable, okay. that, this, right. that this is a message that the salvation that God is bringing is through Israel, but ultimately is going to be for the world. And we can't help but remember that promise to Abraham, that all nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, through his descendants. But that isn't something that should be feared. There's no need to fear, on the one hand, that this won't happen. Right. Because we know who's behind this. We've already covered that ground. But there's also no need to fear that when God shows up, that God is going to be there to contend with the people or to pass further judgment, to initiate further punishment, for example. That's not why God is coming. And this passage makes that very clear. There's this dual image in verses 10 and 11 that God is a a victorious king, a military mighty king, and at the same time as a tender shepherd. Got it. That God has not been defeated by other gods. God has not been laid waste like his temple in Jerusalem was laid waste. He is all victorious, all triumphant, and all powerful, but he comes in gentleness to care for his people. And the people can wait joyfully and expectantly for God's arrival. There is no need to fear. In the rest of the chapter, Isaiah goes on to say more about God's absolute ability to deliver on these promises and to encourage a people facing exile that God will give them strength as they wait upon the Lord. I cannot tell you enough just how magnificent this entire chapter is. If you've never sat down and read it in its entirety, go do that. Just read Mm -hmm. Isaiah chapter 40. The picture we get of God in the rest of the chapter is just truly awesome. This is the God who created everything that exists and sits as ruler over it. This is the God who calls out the stars by name, the God before whom all pagan deities pale in significance. And yet the chapter ends on the same note of comfort that it begins. So, John, I'm very familiar with this chapter. In fact, this is one of the few places where at some time in my life I had the entire chapter memorized. But it hadn't occurred to me that when you say uh, make straight a highway for our God, we're not just talking about the highway on which God comes to the people. But as you described it, this is also the highway on which the exiles return. And as you and I talked about this, we both concluded that there is nothing in our prior experience 
in trying to follow God that feels like a straight highway. So <laughs> <laughs> what do we make out of this? That is very true. Let's remember here that this imagery is about the highway that God travels. And when it comes to God doing for his people what he wants and intends to do for us, there is nothing that can stop him, nothing that can derail or delay him or force a detour. God will not only come to us in person, but God will lead us home. And there is no obstacle to that journey that can affect him in the least. So following God may not feel like a smooth ride, and it isn't. But this imagery really isn't giving us a picture of what it's going to be like from our perspective, Okay. other than to paint the picture of God as our shepherd who comforts and cares for us and carries us to places that we can't reach on our own. John, you've repeated over and over again the certainty of God's ability to make these things happen. Even though the early Christians were so convinced when they read this chapter, they were so convinced that what they were seeing was the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that in subsequent episodes. At the same time, there's no doubt that we often find ourselves in a situation not unlike the ancient nation of Israel going into exile. Situations where we are absolutely powerless to do anything about what's going on around us. This really opens the door to the topic of grace, doesn't it? Because we're, we're talking about how we cannot save ourselves just as Israel could not. And this is something that must be done for us. And there's no way that we can work our way there. No way that we can expend enough effort to arrive at the destination that we want to be. I had a recent experience. I picked up sailing over this past summer in attempting something that I probably shouldn't have attempted. I managed simply to step off of the pier into the marina. Next thing I knew, I was bobbing in the water. And I had just prior to this spent probably about 30 minutes trying to crank an uncooperative engine. So I was exhausted. And there I was hanging underneath the pier. No amount of effort on my own part was going to get me out of that lake. So fortunately, the guy who was with me ran off and got someone. They came over and literally pulled me out. But there is that sense of helplessness as you sit there pondering your life choices. (laughs) And that seemed to emphasize the kind of situation where I have to have someone intervene in this situation. Well, that's it's a great example of being helpless and relying completely on somebody else to come and rescue you. Although I do have to ask the question, you said you've taken up sailing. Why would you have been trying to crank an engine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're required to leave the marina on engine power <laughs> since uh, oh. we're, we're on these training boats and every single other boat around us is probably worth 10 times what our sailing boat is. <laughs> so yes, we have to go out on engine uh. power. But you had brought up... The topic of grace here. Absolutely, grace designates what God does for us. And so often it's not until we come to terms with just how profound our own helplessness is that we are then able to accept, or as we Christians say it, to accept God's grace, to accept what it is that God does for us. Right, and even though the word grace isn't found in this particular section of Isaiah, the picture of grace is all over it. And it's one of the big things that these 11 verses picture for us is God 
coming to do for Israel what Israel can't do for itself. There is no rescue but for the rescue that God offers. And God will come in person to make this happen. That's the promise that's being made here in Isaiah. And there aren't any terms to it. It's not, uh, well, I'll rescue you if. It's an outright promise that this rescue will be offered to you. We can't do a single thing to earn it or to buy it or to work our way toward it. God does it entirely for us, and that's what we call grace. Well, Ron, as we look forward into the rest of the series, let's circle back around and touch base with why is this passage from Isaiah 40 the foundation for this whole series? As we've already observed, Isaiah chapter 40 is one of the most quoted chapters in the New Testament, and this portion of it in particular is absolutely crucial to the New Testament documents. We'll get into it in detail in the next episode, but every single one of the Gospels uses the voice crying in the wilderness as their understanding for what John the Baptist was doing when John announced the coming of Jesus. At the same time, this notion of grace that pervades the chapter, even if the word isn't used there, early Christians saw in Jesus Christ the ultimate expression of God's grace, the ultimate expression of God's love, and it was natural for them to turn to a chapter that emphasizes that grace so thoroughly to understand what they are doing. Again, magnificent chapter, magnificent expression of hope and comfort, and just a natural place for Christians to look as they begin to understand and make sense of what God accomplished in Jesus Christ. So that's where we're headed in the next episodes. We do actually have an ebook to go along with this, do we not, John? Especially for those who might be thinking in terms of leading a discussion. We do. We've got a companion, a resource, an ebook called Prepare the Way, the same title as the series, that is available on our website to help you with uh, individual study, but also to facilitate group study. If you're a group leader, it comes with some cues for how to lead a session around the content of each of these podcast episodes with full background and commentary given on the passages that we're dealing with in that episode, as well as discussion questions and some applications that you can think through as you lead your group. But that's just as useful for an individual if you want to work on this on your own or devotionally. This ebook will be a great resource for you. If you're a participant in a group and you simply want access to the questions and the applications, that's going to be available separately also on the website. So take a look at that. Orthodox.faith slash shop is where you'll find it. This is also a way that you can support Orthodox.faith because there'll be just a, a small charge for downloading those resources. And we appreciate all the support that you give us. Absolutely. Go to the website for the ebook as well as that additional resource that'll be available. And as always, for more information about this podcast and our other activities, do see the website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. And thank you again very much for listening. Mm-hmm.